0: Please welcome to the stage for a conversation on climate and clean energy. Chairwoman Janet al of the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe, Vice President Fawn Sharp of the Quinault Indian Nation, Secretary Pete Buttigieg from the United States Department of Transportation, Brian Deese, Assistant to the President and Director of the White House National Economic Council, and Ali Zaidi, Assistant to the President and National Climate Advisor. This discussion will be moderated by Brian Newland, Assistant Secretary for Indian Affairs at the United States Department of the Interior.
1: Can you guys hear me? All right, good afternoon everybody. Ani My name is Brian Newland, I serve as Assistant Secretary for Indian Affairs here at the Department of the Interior. And we have an exciting panel this afternoon to help get you out of your food coma after that wonderful lunch and performance, so we're gonna cut right to it. Um, I will introduce our panelists first. We have, at the end, Secretary of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg. We have, uh, yes. We have the Director of the White House National Economic Council, Brian Deese. We have... The President's National Climate Advisor, Ali Zaidi, Ali Zaidi, sorry. (laughs) President Fawn Sharp, known to you all, and Chairwoman Janet Elkire of the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe. So we're gonna try to make sure we get to some audience questions, but we've got a lot of important topics to hit. And our first question uh, today is for our tribal leaders on the panel. Uh, President Sharp, how is climate change affecting Native communities? and what impacts and challenges are you seeing on the ground?
2: Yes, excellent question, thank you. Uh, Climate change is definitely real. It has not only physical impacts, but certainly psychological impacts to the Quinault Nation. We have lived for millennia on the coast of the state of Washington, and I am currently working on relocating two of our villages to higher ground. We see sea level rise, Highway 101, our only access road to Quinault, is now about to go into the ocean. And we have elders who live to be close to 100 living right on the coastline when large uh, waves have crashed into Quinault. And so our village is underwater. The place where our ancestors signed our treaty is underwater. And so uh, climate change is real and it's threatening everything that relates to Quinault's life right now.
1: Thank you, President Sharp. Chairwoman
3: Alkire. Thank you. My name is Janet Elkire. Um, As you know, I'm the chairwoman of the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe. Um, I'm really honored to be on this panel with um, uh, these esteemed colleagues here and experts in this area. For me, I've been the tribal chair for Standing Rock for one year. Um, I'm pretty new and um, I'll be honest, I was very nervous to come and sit in front of all you tribal leaders that have been doing this for a really long time, but I am honored to be here and, and speak for my people. Um, yesterday, um, I talked about the um, coming and what is happening at Standing Rock, and, and thinking about it, I was thinking, you know, in this room right now, we have, every single one of you are water protectors and we at Standing Rock thank you for coming when we needed you. We'll always say that. I think the the chairman before me said that, the chairman that's gonna come after me will say that because it comes down to protecting our water, um, protecting our environment for our people and, and climate change. I'm grateful that this administration takes climate change very seriously and um, uh, in regards to the Missouri, right now, we are experiencing severe drought. The water is basically um, i don't know if and I'm thinking that some of you probably were there during the um, protests. The water is basically like a stream you can't you can't uh, you can't really take a boat in it, our boats get stuck on the Missouri because some of it's only one feet tall, one foot, and so it's pretty serious, but I think what it comes down to at Standing Rock, we know that it's climate change, and we know there's a drought, but we also know, um, and, I, and I don't mean to offend anyone when I talk about stuff, um, I, my administration, I made a decision that I was gonna stay with two values for the four years of my administration. And so I come here with that. And the two values are truth and compassion. I will always tell the truth. And when I talk about compassion, um, someone said, how does that relate to Washington, D.C.? I said, the compassion is that you need to put yourself in our shoes. Feel what we feel every day. So those are the two guiding principles for me um, in my administration.
1: Thank you, Madam Chair. And I'll I'll turn back to you with our second question. Um, What are the barriers that tribes face when uh, trying to develop clean energy or entering the clean energy economy? Chairwoman (laughs) Alkire?
3: How about I read, I actually wrote down stuff, so I better read, so. um, You know, yesterday we also talked about, um, I I think um, me and Fawn agree on this. When we talk about renewables and what is happening um, for the future, when in regards to renewables, um, I was talking to my brother when I was coming out here and letting him know that this was a topic I was gonna talk about. And he kind of thought, why, you know? And I said, because for the first time, I feel like maybe maybe it's just me. I shouldn't say the first time, but for me it is. The in regards to what is happening with renewables, and I'm talking solar, I'm talking um, um, wind, we're talking um, geothermal, we're talking a lot of different things like that, and and EVs. Um, it's like a train that's leaving the station, and I and I. This is how I explained to him. I said. We finally, as this train is leaving the station in regards to clean energy and renewals and including Indian country in in this regard, this train is actually offering us a ticket to ride this train. And um, I said, so I think that the tribes need to stay on top of this issue. I know we have so many issues as tribal leaders that we deal with and a lot of them are very immediate. Um, and we always think if we're going to have a million dollars, are we going to put um, a million dollars to in this area um, but, or put a million dollars for road? I mean, we come through these decisions as tribal leaders every day. What is more important, and it's always the immediate need. So I think in this regard... the the train, if they can make sure that the tribes have a ticket in this, and I'm talking in regards to equity again, I'm talking about inclusion, I'm talking about, um, of course, the environmental justice portion of it, but I also believe that we should have a ticket on this train as it moves forward into the future, especially what the President shared earlier. I believe that um, I, I told my brother this, and he said, I, t- I, was t- I said, but you know why? Is because we paid for that train, and we paid for that track. So we need to be on this train. And Vaughn said, no, I think we need a new train.
2: <laughs> Airplane, <laughs>
3: okay. President Sharp?
2: Yes, uh, thank you. I think some of the biggest barriers uh, that we have is, is our ability to be very strategic, and aggressive, and proactive. As tribal nations, that's how we are, that's how we operate. But we can't be aggressive, we can't be strategic, and we can't be proactive if we don't have real clear and steady access to capital to be able to do these things. I mean, tribal nations have done this for for millennia. We, We have new and emerging science, we know uh, the connection that we have to our natural world, our homelands. We know what it needs. We know to, how to bring healthy salmon runs back. We, we know we have this long history, but our inability to access capital to be able to do this in a very strategic way has been a major barrier. And so this morning uh, with uh, the, the announcement uh, to the Cornelk Nation, we now have a good 25% of what we need to relocate our village to higher ground. So thank you, Siokwil for that. And that's a major, has been a major barrier for us to aggressively move out of uh, the tsunami zone. So thank you.
1: Thank you, President Sharp, And I, I Can I add one more thing? Sure thing. I'm sorry. I, don't
3: want, I, I don't want my, uh, my uh, team to be mad at me because I came out here for Standing Rock and they, they gave me my marching orders, you know, my people and our staff. But the biggest thing, they said, make sure you mention the access to capital, just like you said, and the access to the grid and also the interconnection inter- agreements. So I think, um, I'm not sure if everyone understands all this, li- this, these lingo about power purchase agreements and everything, but I encourage tribal leaders, learn about them, because this is the new language that we're gonna, we're gonna need to know for our people in regards to economic development. Okay, I'm done, sorry.
1: (laughs) No, that's important to note, Chairwoman. Thank you, and that's another priority that we've been highlighting at the summit uh, so far today, so thank you for raising that. Um, Our next question will be uh, for Mr. Zaidi and Director Dees. How can the federal government support tribes in transitioning from conventional to clean energy?
4: Um, That's a great question. I wanna just maybe underline uh, something we just heard. You know, when we talk about climate action, I think we tend to talk about greenhouse gases, we talk about solar and wind. Um, At its core, part of the conversation's a conversation about power. Who has the power in building the future that we're talking about? Who's going to benefit from it? Um, And one of the things that I think the conversation often gets diverted to is, let's deploy solar and wind on tribal lands. Okay, that's part of the solution, but who's gonna own the substation asset? Who's gonna own that on-ramp onto the transmission line? And one of the things I'm really proud of in this administration is that we're hopefully being a good partner to all of you in making sure that answer could be the tribes. Because that's going to determine who benefits. And I think that's a really, really important uh, thing for folks to spend time investing in figuring out how you carry that forward. Um, you know, we were able to bring together a, a number of you and, and your energy advisors just a c- couple of months ago, uh, and hopefully you all know uh, Wahela Johns at the Department of Energy for a conference that was specifically focused on making sure you have access to the most senior members of the Department of Energy team as you think about these questions. Uh, But what we realized in doing that was this couldn't just be a conference that happened for a couple of days. And so today, we're actually, the Department of Energy is launching an initiative focused on clean energy transition and tribes to be a ongoing partner Uh, in that work, and in fact, one of the first MOAs under that initiative that's being launched today is with the Navajo Nation, who, by the way, do have their eyes set on uh, a substation asset being part of their energy strategy. So I think the answer is we've got to do exactly um, what what we're talking about. Be the partner in helping folks think through not only the clean electricity being generated, but how it gets deployed who monetizes the benefit.
5: Right. Director Dees. Well, I want to start by thanking all of you uh, for being here and your time. Um, I want to pick up with uh, uh, the, uh, the uh, analogy that the chairman uh, used because I think it's, uh, it's incredibly apt. And start big and then go small. Uh, the, the train analogy that you used, which is um, we, t- we talk a lot about climate, climate action. We know the risks. We know the risks of climate change that are real, um, and are particularly um, felt by communities that don't have, um, don't have, uh, don't have large stocks of, of, of assets. But the opportunity, the economic opportunity, um, I'm the President's economic advisor, the scale of the clean energy transition is the biggest economic opportunity for our country since at least the Industrial Revolution. There is more opportunity on that train. That train is bigger than anything that we have seen in, in, in most of our lifetimes in terms of the economic opportunity. So, uh, while I think there is an imperative uh, for folks to get on, there, the, the, the upside opportunity is enormous because this will transform, it's not just about how we generate electrons. It's not just about renewables. It's about how we move from place to place. We have the Secretary of Transportation here who uh, knows a thing or two about that. It's about how we live um, it's about where we live. It's, it's about all of these things together, and that opportunity is enormous. That's, that's my big point, number one. But the point number two is that the communities that have powered this country and that have harnessed our fossil resources for decades are the communities that need to be at the front edge of this transition. And many tribes and tribal communities have taken advantage of our fossil assets to build wealth, to build knowledge, to build expertise, and we collectively need to leverage that and put those communities at the center of it. And so the one thing I just wanna make sure you are all aware of is that one of the first executive orders, one of the first actions this president took upon becoming president was establishing an interagency working group on coal and fossil fuel communities. And the basic theory of that was to say, these people, these communities have capabilities and also have the right to be at the front of this clean energy transition, but that won't happen on its own. That won't happen unless we put ourselves in the shoes of the communities who operate. The fear that comes from having to be part of this transition uh, and, and, and but also the new tools, the new language, the, 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 uh, the new resources necessary to make that transition. So we understand that as as a federal partner, what we need to do is bring resources to bear to listen and to figure out how to uh, ensure that, uh, that access to capital, how to bring technical assistance to bear, we're doing that in a number of places across the com- country. We're trying to launch rapid response teams in these communities where there might be a power uh, plant that's going to shut down. There might be a large industrial employer that is that is needing to make a transition. So we're there before, not just after that happens, to figure out how to facilitate the transition. That's a commitment from us uh, and a commitment from the president to try to make this work. And I think one of the more concrete ways in which you answer your question, how the federal government can actually be a partner in in accelerating this transition in an equitable way.
1: Thank you, Director Deese. Mr. Secretary, I want to bring you into this conversation um, because when we're talking about climate change, you know, we have to talk about the emissions from transportation, which make up over a quarter of the greenhouse gases um, that are emitted here in the United States. And President Biden has set an ambitious target to get to 50% electric vehicle share of auto sales in the United States by 2030. Uh, And to that end, we have the president uh, making investments of $7.5 billion to build out the first ever nationwide uh, EV charging network of a, a half million EV charging stations. So Mr. Secretary, what can the administration do to ensure that tribes are a part of the EV future of the country and that federal resources for EV development are shared equitably and that we're being supportive of tribal economies.
0: Well, thanks, this is very important to us to get right. Uh, First of all, I should say how how appreciative I am to be part of this and and how great it is to be with with tribal leaders. I've I've had the honor of visiting many of you in your communities and and we're so glad to be with you here, here in Washington. When it comes to this question, I think uh, transportation is one of those areas that can be damaged a great deal by climate change. Um, Just most recently, for example, we were uh, with uh, the Hopi community seeing H60, which affects uh, Hopi, Navajo, and and, and a lot of other communities and, and gets washed out Uh, so frequently, just one example from around the country of what's at stake in terms of receiving the harms of climate change, but also a great opportunity to get in on that that clean energy transition that, that Brian was talking about. And that's especially true when it comes to this electric vehicle revolution. Uh, we recognize that tribal citizens are among those who stand the most to gain. Uh, first of all, because tribal citizens are among those who have uh, often more financial pressure on their families, and so being able to save money uh, through the, the opportunity to fuel cars with, uh, with electrons and not gas is very important. And secondly, for those who are living in areas that are very spread out, the longer the distances in your drive, Uh, the more savings might come to you. But all of that only works if uh, two things are true. If you can afford these vehicles in the first place, and if you have access to places and ways to charge them, including in places that maybe today are not automatically profitable for the private sector to do on their own. And that's part of where this $7.5 billion in funding for chargers can come in. Uh, So with all of that in mind, actually one piece of of news that I'm, I'm delighted that we're able to announce today is the launch of the EV initiative for tribal nations. What we're doing is uh, led by and coordinated through the White House Council on Native American Affairs, we have 10 different federal agencies, us, Interior, Department of Energy, and several others working on how to do things like map that proposed deployment of where the EV charging infrastructure goes so that it can benefit tribal nations, uh, prioritizing projects that serve underserved areas, including tribal lands. Providing the technical assistance to take advantage of funding opportunities because it's whether it's here or any of our other grant programs, we hear loud and clear the voices from Indian countries saying it's great that you have all these programs, but if you expect us to compete for them, it's not always a level playing field. So we recognize needing to work on that. Providing the technical assistance to take advantage of the funding opportunities. Uh, making sure the tribal schools are able to participate and succeed in this effort to replace diesel school buses with low or zero emission school buses, which is a real win-win for, for so many. Uh, helping with uh, uh, tribal governments in their own purchases or leases of, of EV fleets, just as, as we're trying to do in uh, across the federal government. And, and maybe most importantly, just making sure that that nation to nation relationship is one that we're upholding as we unfold this EV policy, which is one of the biggest transformations in in US transportation, really in in modern history. Uh, So that's an example of how we think we can position tribal citizens to uh, succeed, to win in everything from the benefits associated with owning and using EVs to the jobs associated with installing these charging networks and, and, uh, and manufacturing uh, these vehicles and, and the supply chains that go into them. So we're, we're really excited about that. Look for more information coming soon on that. And uh, of course it only works if it works for our tribal partners. And so really excited to engage with everybody here on how to make the most of
1: that. Thank you, Mr. Secretary. As, as a reservation resident, and uh, so many folks here have to drive an hour or more, one way just to get groceries. Uh, This won't work unless there's access to EV charging stations in tribal communities, and we're really excited about this initiative. I wanna turn back to our our tribal leaders. uh, uh, President Sharp. I'll I'll come to you, then Chairwoman Alkire. What's been your experience with electric vehicles, and how do you see this new initiative the Secretary talked about impacting your community?
2: uh, Great. Thank you. Uh, We have uh, electric vehicle chargers at our casino at Quinault, uh, and we have plans for EV charging stations as we move our villages to higher ground. And so uh, we've long known uh, the transportation sector in the state of Washington is the most significant contributor of greenhouse gas emissions. And so early in our planning stages, as we talked about moving our villages to higher ground, we knew that uh, there's going to come a point in time when everybody recognizes this is the largest Uh, contributor to greenhouse gases in the state of Washington, it's not a question of if but when that's gonna happen and develop. So that's part of our our strategic planning efforts in moving to higher ground, and we've also uh, installed it uh, there at the casino right now. So we we do have EV stations, and uh, we have a couple council people that have uh, electric motorcycles that uh, (laughs) they drive up to the council chambers, and so I think there's a little political pressure and demand to install them at the tribal office. (laughs)
1: Thank you, President
3: Sharp, Chairwoman Elkire? I'm really actually very proud to talk about this um, because we have a uh, Section 17 corporation that we started at Standing Rock and it is Strategic Advancement Goals for the Environment and it's SAGE. And they are who, um, they are separate, they're entity of the tribe, and they are the ones that are doing the EV grants, um, the solar and the wind. And one of the things um, I have to say, I'm really proud of them, they are um, helping even with our tribal laws, our ordinances, they getting all those in place. Um, they are a public power authority. And um, that's pretty rare in Indian country to have that, because we do need to work with um, it is actually like a tribal cooperative, and so for us up there in North Dakota, um, sometimes the cooperatives were not very friendly to us right and 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 you have to um, one of the sayings was that you have to pay to play this game, and i don't i, I I feel like, back to the train, I'm, I'm really hoping that right now that I see the environment that we are in right now, that we can be a part of this. Um, our tribe belongs to the Upper Midwest intertribal EV charging community. And it's, um, it's a group of, um, and they received a six million dollar grant in order to do the charging stations, and um, but the trick was, and I and I have to mention this, is is you had to have a fifty percent match, and like I said, the resources for our tribes to get involved in this, it, it's just not easy and not feasible for us, especially um, making these types of decisions. But I, I think through that partnership, we were able to. Um, I participate, and I'm really, really grateful for um, our Sage um, comp- Sage group, our corporation, for doing it and, and keep moving forward. We're actually looking at having um, six to five to six plug ins for EVs, and um, we're looking at our tribe our government having some electric vehicles so we could um, see how that will save us money because everything about the tribe is about saving money. And, because <laughs> yeah, it's, because it, every everything is, uh, it, yeah, you just, you have to be really good about saving money at the tribe. And then we are have D- six DC fast charging stations and we're gonna have 16 level two charging stations. And we're working on the workforce portion um, in training and developing those within our tribe. And I guess, um, but I really wanna say is, I, don't, I, I wanna also be real here and, and be truthful as a tribal leader. Um, no one is driving a fancy Tesla down our country roads. You know, no feds, Mrs. Secretary. They're full of potholes. (laughs) I'll mention Kennel Road right now. (laughs) But that's okay. I'm just gonna, I'm just messing with you. But we really do need. You know, we're talking about EVs, and we want to be part of that train. But also. We have the secretary here and I know tribal leaders, I talked to Brian, I said, I'll I'll be short because I really want the tribal leaders to be able to talk to the secretary. And so we do know that roads on our reservations is one of the biggest issues that we deal with. So I'll end it there, thank you.
1: Thank you, uh, Madam uh, Chair, Mr. Secretary, any quick response?
0: Uh, Yeah, no, (laughs) point is well taken Uh, and you know, part of what we're trying to make sure of is that this is again affordable and accessible, right? So, for example, the Inflation Reduction Act made sure that there were tax credits to help make sure used vehicles, uh, as well as new vehicles, qualified. Uh, that, that's how Chasson and I got in on EVs. We we got a, a used Ford C-Max. It was a plug-in hybrid. You know, Cost us about fourteen thousand bucks, and we could plug it in the garage. And uh, and we saved a lot of money by owning one. Uh, but Part of the, the thinking here with this funding is, obviously, some of the roads that I saw, certainly in the Southwest, uh, maybe more candidates for the F-150 than, uh, <laughs> uh, than either my little old C-Max or, uh, or a Tesla or anything like it. Uh, but again, it's got to be affordable, which is why we got these tax credits. And we've got to have enough chargers out there that people can count on being able to get the charge they need. And that kind of access doesn't happen on its own. And we know that it's not necessarily profitable. Uh, that's why we want to make sure we're, we're we're intervening. So the point's well taken, but 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 part of what it means to move into this EV revolution, right, is to frankly get away from that that first chapter where it was the early adopters and it's the people in cities, uh, you know, with with a lot of money to uh, to to take a chance on a new technology, and watch this become something that people of every income level in every part of the country can take advantage of. And we're under no illusion that that's. A reality today it's exactly why we think it's so important to invest and partner together to make it a reality tomorrow Thank you mr secretary
1: mr zaidi let's uh, let's talk about the uh, infrastructure law and the inflation reduction act um, how can uh, how can these two uh, massive investments led by President Biden um, support tribes in climate resilience efforts
4: so secretary was just talking about the EV tax credit, so, you know, $14,000 used car, you get $4,000 on the hood to bring down that cost uh, with that tax credit. If it's a new car, $7,500. That is part of a broad suite of uh, rebates and tax credits that will help us make it more affordable uh, for more folks to be able to take advantage. Of these technologies. I think what we're going to have to do is make sure that we're pairing all of these programs with the engagement um, that's necessary so that people actually become aware of how to use these technologies. And then, I mean, just to go to the potholes point, um, you know, I think we also just have to be clear-eyed about the fact that when we talk about electric vehicles, we're talking about uh, an environment where people pay 10, 15 cents a kilowatt hour for electricity. For some tribes, it's four times as high. Uh, and it's, And the big challenge that we face there is how are we actually going to shift to cheaper sources of electricity before we can harness that cheap electricity to run our cars, right? So to that end, one of the big things that we're trying to do is not only use these um, tools uh, in terms of grants and rebates, but also use our procurement power. So one of the things we're announcing today is that when the federal government goes out and buys clean electricity, the president set a target to get to 100%, that we will preference tribal communities that are generating that clean electricity. And here's why that matters, because for a lot of folks, those projects have been on the margin, right? And if, you, you know, you build the project, maybe there's not enough demand in the community to gener- to support a whole project coming online. The federal government, other big purchasers coming in and offering to be the off-taker for a big chunk of that power, now all of a sudden that big project that could deliver electricity at something like 8, nine, ten cents a kilowatt hour, cut people's electricity bills, can actually be a viable project. So... One is the consumer rebates. The second is procurement. The third is these are not, when we talk about all these tax credits, people's eyes glaze over, and that's a pretty reasonable response to tax policy. But this is not the same old, same old tax credit. Mm -hmm. To get the full value of a tax credit, as the code is now written, you have to get 10% of your labor hours from apprenticeships. So for a lot of you who are like, well, I don't do... Energy policy, well, maybe you do want to get young people into new jobs. This tax credit is for that. And for once, we've decided to be deliberate about where this stuff gets built out. So there's actually an adder 10% more tax credit if you deploy in disadvantaged communities. And for, you know, if you look at where that overlaps from a census tract perspective, that's going to mean more projects uh, in Indian country. And then finally, um, this is a really exciting thing. So, you know, I think a lot of you have probably got the experience, we talked about access to capital, of going to a bank and they've got two projects in front of them, right? And they get to decide which one makes the most sense. Now we have an incentive within the tax code that allows for direct pay for. Projects developed by tribes, nonprofits, rural cooperatives. That sets you at an advantage relative to for profit utilities trying to build the same exact thing. So I think whether it's at the consumer facing, whether it's the procurement power of the government, whether it's grants, whether it's the tax code, there is not only resources available and the technical assistance I talked about earlier, but hardwired into the economics of how this stuff has been built is a sensitivity and appreciation that we've gotta use this moment to pull forward as much opportunity in places that have been left behind as possible.
0: Sorry, just one more minute. I I just wanna be sure to to be connected to reality. I'm I'm sure there are a lot of people, a lot of tribal citizens who will hear us talking gas car versus electric car, new car versus used car and saying, that's nice, I don't have a car. I don't think I'm gonna have a car anytime soon. At best, I have a cousin. Uh, my cousin has an unreliable car. Maybe it's an unreliable cousin. Uh, and, and, and so we get what a lot of folks are up against there. So the other piece of news I have to make is that we're hosting the first ever tribal transit symposium. And, we really, and it'll be open to all of the 574. And we really want to be working with you on the transit side, too. We don't assume that uh, many or most people have access to a privately owned vehicle. And whether it's making that greener or just making it available, uh, we wanna work very closely with you on the transit side too. Thank you, Secretary.
1: And and Director Deese, we'll we'll close with you uh, with probably the toughest question. Um, You know, we we talk a lot about uh, renewable energy technology, um, but all of that technology requires uh, critical minerals that are often uh, found either within tribal lands or or in uh, traditional tribal homelands of, of uh, cultural importance. Um, what uh, is the administration, or how can the administration balance the need uh, for these critical minerals with the rights and interests of tribal nations?
5: Yeah, I think uh, this is it's it's important that we are real and honest and and very open about this reality. Um, Because we talk about electric vehicles, we talk about solar panels, but in the same way that it is coal and natural gas and oil that have powered the fossil economy, it is lithium and nickel and cobalt and rare earth metals, these critical minerals that will power the clean energy economy. And uh, we have now an urgent, economic and national security imperative Mm -hmm. to secure reliable supply chains of these materials, both the mining, the processing, and the recycling of these materials. Because as this clean energy boom unleashes, if we do not build those resilient supply chains, we as a nation will become increasingly reliant on, principally China, but other foreign countries as well, who don't share our values, but who could have extraordinary um, economic control over those supply chains in ways that, you know, we have seen the vulnerability during COVID, our entire national economy of supply chains that are too brittle and not resilient enough. So this is an urgent imperative to do so, but we also have to name that the historic legacy of our country when it comes to mining of critical materials has too often been a legacy of deep injustice for tribes and, and tribal communities. And so uh, what we can do, what we need to do, is we need to start by recognizing that the law in the United States that governs hard rock mining is 150 years old. It doesn't reflect reality of today and it doesn't reflect our values fully. So we need to reform and we need to update, but we need to do so by listening to the voices of tribal communities and tribal leaders in formulating that response. So that's what we have committed to do. I, I thank many of you who have been part of those consultations over the last several months, and today we are outlining a set of actions and recommendations for how to update those laws to reflect the um, uh, the rights and the voices of tribal communities in every stage in that process. Uh, and I will just say, going forward, as we seek those reforms, I think the, the thing that we can most constructively do as a partner is to be very real about being able to talk about this issue around tables and recognize that there are no easy solutions and that as we think about doing mining and processing, this is tough work. It's tough work in communities, uh, wherever those communities are. And uh, some of that will happen outside the United States. Some of that is gonna happen here in the United States as well, but to do so in a, uh, in a spirit of partnership and a recognition that our generation, now with the tools that, that Ali outlined in the Inflation Reduction Act and the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, it is incumbent on our generation to build with scale and speed of the clean energy economy, but respect the rights and the values of our tribal nations in building critical mineral supply chains. That's hard, but we have the tools we need to do it. And so you know, what we need to do is we need to be very intentional about this work as we go forward. That's a commitment we would make to, uh, you know, on behalf of the administration.
1: Thank you, Director Deese. Thank you to all of our panelists. I know that, uh, I know, if we know that uh, tribal leaders uh, here, we know that you wanna engage us in a dialogue. We wanna hear from you. We have uh, White House Council uh, engagement sessions later this afternoon where we will do more listening than talking. Um, but we have to cut this panel uh, short at this time uh, to make sure that we catch up for uh, everybody who's scheduled to be here. I wanna thank our panelists uh, for a great discussion, for joining us with their, uh, out of, taking time out of their busy schedules. Again, thank all of you, and we look forward to hearing from you later this afternoon. Miigwech.